What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website, where you will find some of the most creative African-American artists in art, music, animation, comics, novels, short stories, and what have you. And um, my name is William Hayashi. I will be your host for this evening. And our special guest tonight is, well, actually, nobody knows what time you're listening to this, but our special guest is Roxanne Bland. And I would say probably, let's see, from what you told me, not from what I read, but from what you told me, you're, you're an author and a publisher. Would that be fair to say? That's fair to say. And, and, and how many, well, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank and, you. and how many other accolades and, and, and things can we say about you? Well, um, I was just elected president of Broad Universe, which is an international organization of um, science fiction, fantasy, horror writers that celebrates women, uh, promotes women, and encourages women in the genre. Uh-huh. Um, and I am also a member, a life member, of the Baltimore Science Fiction Society. And uh, let's see. Well, those are two off the top of my head. Well, that's good. I mean, and so, and where are you coming to us from tonight? I'm coming to you right outside of Baltimore, Maryland. All right. And have you lived there for a long time? Uh, for about 10 years, about 10 years. Prior to that, um, I lived in um, Washington, D.C. I grew up in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, after the after the hiatuses, you know, for um, school and things like that, I returned to Washington and just stayed in the area. Um, you know, I had this uh, this kind of this, this thought that, well, maybe I should go to Hawaii. But uh, needless to say, I'm still here. Um, and uh, like I said, about 10 years ago, I bought my house um, right outside of Baltimore, and I've been here ever since. Wow. Um, and then growing up there, I mean, what kind of, uh, I mean, what we would consider a rather normal upbringing? Was there, was there a lot of jail time? Was, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to talk about that. Um, I mean, did you, did you have what you would consider a, a fairly normal upbringing? Well, first of all, normal is a cycle on a washing machine and nothing more. Um, but well, yeah, also, I, no, 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 no. It's also the straight line setting for my equalizer on my uh, on my uh, ah, stereo too. So I see. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I had uh, a normal childhood. Um, I grew up with three sisters. Um, uh-huh. We all lived in this big house in Northwest Washington, and you know my parents made sure that. You know, we were exposed to museums, um, the art, 
and things like right. that. In fact, um, I started taking piano lessons. I've been playing piano. I had been playing piano since I was four uh-huh. and um, actually ended up going to a fine arts high school. And um, that was a lot of fun. And then um, I went to college, and I still played the piano, but um, not as much anymore. So I had a, I had a musical background. I also wrote. Um, I remember writing a story in elementary school. Um, the only thing I remember about it is that the planet was named Zoine, Z-O-I-N-E, and the fire was black. Okay. And it won a it won a prize. So that's pretty um, cool. I mean, you know, to to I mean, well, before we even get further than that, where when did you know that you had like stories in you? I mean, obviously that's pretty young, but but you I mean you obviously must have self identified that you were capable of writing. What was your what was kind of like your dawning awareness of that? Well, um, Probably my school school uh, English classes and things like that when they had us write essays and little right. stories and things like that. I mean, I've always known I had stories inside of me. Some would call them lies, but I've always known I had stories inside me. It was a question of writing them, and I was mm-hmm. always um, I was always more into the music um, rather than writing stories. I wrote to entertain myself. Let's put it that right. way. Um, I had no real idea that I could actually do this and other people would enjoy it. Um, but you but you just went and did it. Well, you did but, it yeah, for I just school, went, right. but still, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just did it. And you know, I, it was it was something you did to relax. Sure. You know? And, and no, um, hey, I and I envy you. I honestly envy you because you know, for the longest time, I would say, you know, a long time, I, I learned how to play drums in high school. But the thing that I really, really, in my heart of hearts, wanted to do was to learn how to play the piano. Um, there's so much versatility and there's so much artistry to it that um, it's something that I think, you know, I would have loved to have been very, very good at. Um, Let me tell you a what, secret. What's that? Piano is very easy to play. It is Not very when you've got hard. six fingers on each hand. It is very hard to master. <laughs> ah, okay. I, yeah, I could, I could definitely believe that. Yeah, so you can learn to play the piano. You want to hear my fantasy about playing a piano? What? You know how Bloomingdale's during, or, or the, the really expensive department stores during the Christmas season, they always have some guy playing the piano in the lobby or, you know, in some atrium or something like that? Yes. My my fantasy is to wait until that person goes on break, sit down, and play either one of two tunes, either Linus and Lucy by <laughs> Vince Guaraldi or The In Crowd by Ramsey Lewis. Just play the one song, get up, and walk away. That's my fantasy. That's so, a great fantasy. It is, I, I think it is. I mean, you know, you just have some guy in his scruffy little winter wear sit down, you know, crack his fingers, and then play either of those songs. Right. And then before people have a chance to clap, just get up and get the hell out of there. So that's that's just one of my fantasies. That's a um, wonderful fantasy. When did you start? Did you start that young with on the piano? Um, I started that young. I started at four because oh, my okay, yeah. eldest sister, 
see, this is how it went. Okay. When we were seven years old, we started taking piano lessons. When I was four, my eldest sister was either just, well, seven or eight or something like that. But anyway, I was imitating her. Ah, uh, okay, sure. And that, and I played by ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I turned seven, you know, I started taking piano lessons and learned how to read music and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yes, I have been playing since I was four, but I didn't start taking formal training until I was seven. And I took formal training all up up until I graduated from high school. Wow. So, well, you know, if it's something that gives you joy and you're good at it, the chances are very good that you're going to stick with it. Um, well, the pro- well, I have a little problem now. I, uh, a number of years ago, I was um, dusting my apartment, a very dangerous occupation, and I mm-hmm. ran a piece of glass through my finger. Oh, did you and, sever a nerve? Yeah, did a little nerve damage. Ah. So um, I haven't really been able to play. Although I will say this, when I press on it these days, it doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. So maybe oh, well, I'll get good. another so, piano and uh, start yeah. playing again. Or, you know, look look for a garage sale and get a keyboard first. First of all, yeah. the, the travel is not as hard, you know, to push right. down on the uh, keys, so. Right. Well, I mean, that's great. So now you you wrote this first story at the mm-hmm. ripe young age of? I think I was like 10. 10 years old. And, yeah. and did you continue writing or, you know, was, was it kind of like one-offs for school? Um, how, well, how did that work out? Well, between school and, you know, just kind of writing for myself. I mean, I, I, it's not that I ever showed anybody what I'd written. I usually just wad it up and throw it away. Right. Um, you know, it was it was just something for me. So I guess I've been writing off and on um since, you know, since I was a kid. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And it's like and like I said, it's because I was more into the music growing up that um I didn't, you know, I didn't pursue writing. You know, it was just something to do. Right. Yeah. And um and it wasn't until I was much older that I started to get kind of serious about it. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I used to write little short stories, again, to entertain myself. Mm-hmm. And and I started wondering, I like, gee, I wonder if these are any good. I never submitted, you know, they they all got thrown away. But, you know, you start that 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 thought came to me. I said, I wonder if these are any good. I wonder if I'm any good. So, you know, a number of years passed, um, and I had pretty much stopped writing at all. And then um, in 2001, I started working on, I had an idea for what is now the underground. Mm-hmm. And and these are char- I must. I have to say, these are characters that had been floating around in my head um you know for years they they took on different guises mhm um but essentially they were the same characters and in the underground i finally put them down on paper right um and 
that was that was a fun book to write. It was very it was very cathartic. It was therapy for me. I at the time I wrote it, you know, one of my beta readers wanted to know why was it so violent? And I told her it's because I'm angry. And I had some things happen in my life that, you know, made me very angry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and it came out in my writing. Um, it came out on uh, the story. I mean, you know, it's it's you know, werewolves don't eat anybody in the story or anything like that. But he gets his butt kicked, you know, by by his by his soon to be lady love, the alien. <laughs> right. You know, there's there's other violence, you know, that's threading its way through the book. Sure. And, no, I can uh, relate. I mean, sometimes when you draw from your your personal experiences, not only is it is it a more personal right, but but it, the the writing often tends to be more visceral because it comes from someplace other than just intellectual endeavor. Yeah, I think I think you've hit it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I, all of my writing is based upon, you know anger and rage, but what I've done is I have carefully, I believe, carefully covered that up because Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody wants to read a book about an angry black man with issues. You know what I mean? Or read a book by an angry black man who has issues. So, I mean, it's, it's like six of one and a half dozen of the other. I think that if you use those passions and those emotions effectively to paint a good literary picture, it probably works out fine. Um, You know, I can't very well, you know, write a book that says Kill Whitey, you know, because that's probably just not politically correct. You're not going to get HarperCollins to publish that. You know, there's a a whole lot of nonsense (laughs) behind that that is just not helpful. But right. if, you talk, if if you write about the fact that there's some black people who are technologically advanced who just wanted to get away from white people so much that they moved to the moon, that's a story. So I mean, now when you when you talk about you know your anger was a driving force for what you wrote, how did you coach that anger? How did you couch that anger so that it it drove a story but didn't overwhelm a reader? Well, I think the love angle uh-huh. in, the, in the story softens um, the anger that um, the anger that 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 permeates the story. I mean, okay. when the book opens, our werewolf is in a really bad way, and he's he's not just angry; he's enraged. Um, when the story well, opens, wait, can I ask a question though sure. of, of you and and everybody in the in the chat room? Has anybody ever read about a happy werewolf? Okay, please continue your story. We'll we'll take your <laughs> answers offline. <laughs> well, when when the story opens, the alien is at the end of her rope. Okay, um, and. You know, you know, as as the story progresses, they find each other, and their anger 
um, you know, between each, with each other, they are able to channel their anger elsewhere and find so love. The com- so the commonality of their experience and their their their, their the focus of their feelings builds builds a, a commonality that yes. leads to love. Okay. Yes. Yes. The enemy and of my enemy is my friend or lover. Yeah, you could put it that way. Okay. You could put it that way, yeah. Um and um and of course by the end he's a very happy werewolf. That's why I laugh. Mhm. <laughs> no, I gotta read me one of those. No, I'm serious. I mean think think about all of the film ever since, you know, the 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 creation of the genre. Mm-hmm. And think about all of the books, all of the stories, all of the characterizations you you don't often find. I can't remember when you ever found a happy werewolf. So which is which is one of the reasons why I asked you about that, knowing a little bit about how it ended. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I believe everybody deserves some happiness, including werewolves and aliens. Even mm-hmm. vampires. I I like oh. the I like the alien touch though. I really like that. You know, um, I was I was thinking, um when I when I wrote that, when I put the uh-huh. alien in, right? I was I was thinking to myself, what would make this story stand out? What would make this? I mean, it's, okay, we got a werewolf, we got a witch, and we have a vampire. Uh-huh. What would make this story stand out? And I said, why don't I make her an alien? Why don't oh, I make you know, her I was, character an amnesiac alien who may be a serial killer? Why don't I make her an alien? <laughs> your your people certainly have issues, don't they? I mean, when you oh, first yes. said the trio, I was thinking you were going to to say and a midget, but um, <laughs> so, um, and it's see that's the thing. I mean, I think that's what people today are going to struggle with forever especially if they write in these genres, because we have such well-defined mainstream understandings and expectations about what a werewolf is and, and what a vampire is and what a, a zombie is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's the struggle because you want, you would, if you're going to tackle any of those genres, you want your story to be unique and to draw people in. And and right. that's a, a dual-edged sword, I think, because, you know, since we've established what I'm, – I'm doing air quotes in my own house by myself. If you've established what the expectations are for any one of those, you know, in our culture the way that we have and in, in modern entertainment, mm-hmm. then when you go and you want to do something unique, first of all, you have to fight everybody – when they say, well, that's not what a werewolf is, and you can't really just poke them in the eye and go, shut up, I'm writing what I'm writing, because, because the, the expectations of your audience are, are so important in at least trying to be a successful writer. Right. So, I mean, throwing in the alien twist was, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, that's just me, you know. If I was really, really smart, though, you know, I probably wouldn't be doing the show. But, I, <laughs> I mean, seriously, no, no, I'm serious, but finding a new hook that's I think that's what everybody struggles with. Um, well, I think um, I, I also, you know, you were talking about expectations mm-hmm. and things like that, and I 
let let me let me back up. Let me um explain something. Okay. When I was growing up and when I was a young adult, you walk in a bookstore and you see a section called sci-fi fantasy. Right. Well, I didn't know those were two different genres. I no thought space, there was, I, I thought there was a genre called sci-fi fantasy, and that's what right. I did. Right. I wrote an urban fantasy that happens to have an alien in it. Mm-hmm. So, and there's um, nothing wrong with that. But then what happens but like, when... But like you said, with people's expectations. Yeah. You know, this is this is a story about a werewolf. What's the alien doing in here? Right. You know, um, this is a story about an alien. What's the werewolf doing in here? Yeah, are these are these alien werewolves? Are these alien whatever yeah. Right. Yeah, and right. And, and 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 see the thing is, publishers, bookstores, um, online uh repositories and online uh commerce sites Mm-hmm. You know, they, they want to be able to pigeonhole things very, very neatly. Right. You know, that's partly for our benefit as creatives so that people can find our stuff easier. But what if you do do something that's truly creative, you know, and, and then you don't fit in? You know, I fought the, the longest to keep from having people classify dark side, you know, my dark side books as science fiction. I wanted mm-hmm. it to be speculative fiction because that's more highfalutin and it's less pigeonholy and uh, this and that and the other thing. But, you know, you you ask somebody, well, what's speculative fiction? They go, I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, and, and, and that, no, I mean, but that makes it truly hard for, for one to set oneself up. So, right. you know, you bite the bullet, you accept what is, you know, what the expectation is and you hope for the best. Right, um, and you know, let me ask you, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, well, was going to say, in reading, <laughs> go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. No, no, it's your show. I Seriously. was going to say, in reading the reviews, um, uh-huh. nowhere does that come out more than in reading the reviews. There were, there are people. It's like people either loved it or they hated it. Oh, nothing in the middle. There was, there was very, very little in the middle. Mm. And um, you know, one woman wrote. This was the weirdest book I've ever read, to which I say thank you. But, um, you know, it, it was, you know, one woman wrote that she hated the character. Of course, the problem was she didn't say why. I would love to have known why she hated the characters. But anyway, you know, but then, like I said, other people just absolutely loved it. So, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things. Like you said, I wrote a story that people... Um, can't pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. And therefore, since they can't pigeonhole it, you know, there are those who, who embrace it because it can't be pigeonholed, and there are those who step back because it can't be pigeonholed. So right. I, think that's, I think that's why there's no middle ground. Yeah, and, you know, people people, when they go and look for something to read, you know, they already know what genre they want. Right. And and they and they even know what story they want. Right. And people tend to read the same kind of story. So if someone's into romances, they generally shop for more romances. You know, not right. a lot of people cro- cross out of their genre. And and if they mistakenly read your book or start to read your book based upon a misperception or 
or maybe an inaccurate um, whatnot, you know, an inaccurate description from somebody else or a review. Um, yeah, then you then you get you, you get their unhappiness laid on you in kind of an unfair way. Mm-hmm. You know, because because you know it's like oh you know I went I went to buy a car and and I wanted a Porsche. And, but I got a I got a VW instead, and then you know then they then they're upset with their car, not realizing that they did a manage their expectations or b check out what they were buying, um, and and so that I mean that is hard, and you know I'm looking I'm looking at the um, your uh, the underground on Amazon, and I'm looking at the reviews, and you know you can tell that some people were were a little taken aback, but then once they saw that it was different. Some people really like that, you know. Right. Um, right. So you're you're at the vagaries of the intellect of of your audience. <laughs> and sometimes that's exactly, not such a good and sometimes thing. that's not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say uh, I, did get, I did get two five star reviews in England. So. Oh well, you know, somebody the in the different. UK likes my books. Yeah, you know, I haven't even checked to see what Amazon England says about me. Uh, uh, anyhow, um, okay, so you've got this one out here. You've got a little bit of feedback. Uh-huh. Um, tell us a little. Tell us a little bit about the process you went through to start the story. And and I mean, you you mentioned. I don't remember if it was on the show or something. You know, we we obviously we've talked before, letting the audience know we've you know we've shared some hangout time, but when. Did you have a story first, or did you have characters first that you wove into a story? What tell us a little bit about your process? Characters yeah. were woven into a story. Um, okay. I'm not a plotter. I'm a pantser. Uh-huh. Um, I had a general idea of I knew who my characters were. I had a general idea of where I wanted them to start, where I wanted them to be in the middle, and I knew where I wanted them to be, but I knew where I wanted them to be at the end. Okay. So basically, it was a matter of writing, crafting my story to get from A to B to C, um, and crafting it in such a way that you know it it was a story and not a random collection of chapters. I was mm-hmm. very lucky um, in that my teacher. And I still refer to or mentor, if you will, was an editor who um, specialized in writing thrillers. Why he took me on, I don't know. I guess he saw something in my very, very, very first draft um, that I actually wrote in four months. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, he saw. Wait, something you wrote in the it. first draft of this book in four months? Yes. And how many under- words is it? Oh, I don't remember, but I'll tell you, William, the present underground is very different from that very, very first draft because what he told me, what he taught me was this is how you have to shape your character. This Uh is how they, you know, he taught me about knowing your character so well you know how they're going to react. You know, you don't want um, to do X to the werewolf and have him react as A when he really should have reacted as B. 
He said that that he says things like that don't ring true, and your readers will mm-hmm. spot it. Right. And um, so he taught me all this stuff, and in between teaching me, well, actually not in between. While he was teaching me all this stuff, I wrote the book. I can't tell you how many times he made me write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite chapter one until it was to his satisfaction, not finished, Mm -hmm. to his Mm -hmm. satisfaction that I could move on to chapter two. (laughs) Well, that is a hell of a mentor. Yeah, he he was really... um, he he was really something, and um, he told me when we first talked on the phone, he says, I'm going to teach you how to write a bestseller. And, um, Do you have his phone number? Hang on, let me get a pen. <laughs> no, he's retired. He's retired. Aww. No, he's not. Okay, all right. Okay. He's not, uh, no, he's not editing anymore. Um, but that's what he told me, and, and I think that, you know his his less obviously his lessons have stuck have stuck because I you know I'm working on my second novel, right? So which is very different than the first. Um, for anybody who's interested, I did look it up. Your your uh, uh, underground is probably somewhere between 180 and 200 thousand words. Yeah, it's 466 pages. Yeah, 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 yeah. My that's um, a respect that's a respectable size book. My current work in progress is something like um is something like five hundred some no, it's not that many. Oh, I can't remember how many it is, but it's thick. It's big. Uh huh. Sure. It's bigger than the underground. But this time and you know, and the thing about the underground was really funny is that there were parts, you know, of the story that I left out because I I thought well, nobody's going to want to read about that. It's going to make the book too big. So, um, I, can you believe that? I mean, geez. well, I mean, yes, yes, and no. I mean, I, I, I did. I was not lucky enough to have a mentor like you did. You know, when I sat down and started writing a book, I, I, I did, I didn't know jack. I mean, seriously, I really didn't know. And I sat down and I started writing a book, and then I, I said to myself, you know, maybe you should look up and see what people say about writing a novel. And and I got books by um, a few books by John Gardner. You know, he's mm-hmm. a, a great American novelist, and he writes books on writing. Mm-hmm. And and but you know, by the time I finished the most important part of the first book that I read, and that was if it doesn't move the story forward, take it out. Um, you know, I I was I was up to three hundred thirty thousand words, and fortunately, I had an editor who cut a third of that out. But right. I mean, a lot of uh, – I wish I would have maybe taken more English classes or something, although by the time I started writing, I would have forgotten all of that anyway. But it, it so helps to have, you know, that kind of that kind of assistance, that kind of – like I said, a, a mentor. Um, but you had been writing for a long time. I think the only thing that you had done that probably didn't serve you was you didn't save that work. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So that you could go back and either if it was good, you could have cleaned it up if it was or or you could have you know seen your progression or maybe learned from it, but man, falling upon that kind of editor is such a great, great lucky happen chance and and now lucky. yeah, and now that you don't have him, do you feel facile enough? do you feel 
grounded enough that the second novel that you're writing is going to still benefit from so much, you know, from from what he he helped you with in the first book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I hear his voice in my head, you know, like you said, does this move this does this chapter move the story forward? What are you going to put in this chapter that moves the story forward? Why is it and in see here? that Yeah, and that's common. I mean, that's exactly what Gardner said. And and now that I've spoken to other you know, people who teach about writing, they, they, they all agree. If it, if it doesn't serve moving the story forward, don't put it in there. Um, and, he, and he actually told me, taught me to, and you take it not just by chapter by chapter, you take it sentence by sentence. Mm-hmm. Does this sentence move the story forward? Does this, does, I mean, so what if it makes sense? That's not the, that's not the point. Does it move the story forward? And if it doesn't, right. take it out. I mean, there were, you know, I, I I believe that all of my chapters move the story forward, but there were many sentences, you know, within that I either you know had to rewrite or just take out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they did not they did not add to the story. And so, and well, of course, it's at the editors now. But what I did is I tightened it up as best I could. And hopefully the editor won't have a whole lot to do. Um, I can't. I can't say you know it won't come back dipped in red ink, but um, that was my goal. That the editor wouldn't have very much to do, because I was listening to my mentor in my head, telling me, "Does this really work?" Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, and I also too. I guess he also taught me. He he taught me to be honest. Is not really quite what I'm looking at, but but it is a, it is a, a, a type of honesty. Being honest with yourself and being honest with your craft. Don't get hung up on your own words. You know, if you got to cut them, cut them. Be ruthless. Oh man, I you know I ran into I. I ran into that that very problem with this last this third book that I of, of my trilogy. I I got into a real groove writing and writing and writing and and you know I I liked the way the story was going and what, the way everybody behaved. And then I got to a point where I realized, ooh, this is not going to lead us to the ending that I wanted for the book. Mm-hmm. And I actually had to delete four chapters, which I mean, yep. it, I it it killed. It me. hurt. It, it was the first time I ever had, and you know, my chapters are like four thousand words, forty-five hundred words, generally speaking, and and to and to get rid of twenty thousand words, it oh man, you know, I didn't cry or anything because you know I don't want anybody calling calling me you know bad names, but I'm sitting there just shaking my head, and and I knew they were not going to do me any good. There was nothing in there that was going to work. You know how you try to salvage something because you put in the yes. effort? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I cut it, and I, I was going to delete it, but I just wasn't strong enough. <laughs> no. I put no, it in another – I put it in a folder someplace else. Yeah, well, no, that'll never work. And, and you know, now now that we're I'm done with that book, I'm never going to – I'm not going to go back or anything. But it, it was very hard. And, and I think that, you know, I think creatives are just as – 
I don't want to say ego-driven in a bad way, but, you know, if you write something and you write it well, there, there's ownership, there's validation, there's all kinds of things tied up in it. And then if all of a sudden you find out that you've yanked, you know, you have to yank the rug out from under your own feet, right? It, it, you know, I think that there's a strength in there if you're able to just do it and go, oh, this is ridiculous and cut that crap out. Right. But, man, it, it, it just about killed me, as they say. So well, maybe um, you can make a story out of what you cut. Oh, yeah, well, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm, as you said that, I, I said the first thing that went in, through my mind was, oh, maybe I should just go open it up and look at what you had written. But, but no, no, because it was, it, was, it, was, it was bad enough that I didn't have to do it, and I should have the stones enough to just say, hey, you know, you kept yourself from making a bad mistake. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's essentially what it is. You know, if, if you, and, and you know, I, I understand what you said about being in love with your words, because I, I had a love affair in my first book, and, you know, they, oh, they had some great repartee, and there was this, uh, this scene and that scene. And, you know, my editor said, you know, this, this is not moving anything along. This is, this is you playing with yourself. And I was mad at her for a, a long time because it was like, well, that's a lot of work. I mean, when you cut out a third of a book and say, here, this is what makes sense, yeah, it, it, was, it was the first thing I wrote, so, of course, the very first thing that I felt was that it was an invalidation of self. Yes. You know, that, and so, I mean, writing is obviously a singular exercise, unless you're doing a collaborative work. And as a singular exercise, I think we all have an emotional buy-in to what we're doing that sometimes makes it very, very hard to be objective. I mean, that's just my observation of most people. That, so, is, that is 100% true. I think that is 100% true. Um, my writer hat and my editor hat uh-huh. are two very different things. And sometimes I hurt my feelings. Yeah. You know, by cutting stuff out. But, you know, as my mentor taught me, it's it's, if people are going to, people don't, the one, the last thing, the worst thing you can do to your reader is to bore them. Or waste their time and money. Waste their time. Right. One the, well, to yeah. me, that's one and the same. Yeah, okay. And, um, and he said, that's the worst thing you can do to your reader. Don't do that to your reader. Um, <laughs> you know, you have, if, you know, you have to do whatever it is you have to do. Um, to make your story interesting, to grip their, to keep their attention, grip their attention, and keep their attention. And if that means you have to cut, then you're going to have to cut. I don't care how much it means to you. And I, I, you know, and he's right. You know, but let me let me tell you a kind of a, a funny story about the underground. Okay. There's a there was a um, there's a scene in there a BDSM scene and involving the witch. And I remember we were talking. He says, did you just put this in for shock value? Because if you did, you need to take it out. Mm-hmm. And I told him, wait, 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 wait. There's, there's a reason why she's tied down to the mattress and, you know, and how she's going to get out and all that kind of stuff. And as it turns out, it was, the straw that broke 
the camel's back, to use a cliche, for the werewolf because they were lovers. And okay. it was like, and it was like, you know, this is it. Get out of my face. Get out of my life. So that oh, was. Hang on, I'm I'm just taking some notes. What page was that on? Oh, William, I don't remember. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no. you're not. <laughs> no, I am. I, I am. But see, you see, you. On the other hand, you know, when people say, "Hey, I heard you wrote a great love scene in your in your book that men and women like," and they they go, well, "Well, where is it?" And I tell them, "Oh, it's right in chapter forty." See, I can tell them, but, but um, you gotta you gotta think of that in terms of marketing, I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, when when and and so that begs the question: What what age group are were you targeting? Is this definitely an adult book? This is an adult book, yes. Um, okay. My my characters are all in um, their well, they vary in age because, like, my werewolf is twenty nine. Yeah. Um, the vampire is like five hundred. The witch is in her mid-40s, so she looks like she's just gotten out of college. That's because witches don't age the way humans do. None mm-hmm. of them do, actually. But um, so the youngest of the, and the alien would pro, is probably, would, I guess if you translated, you know, planetary rotation and all that kind of stuff, she'd probably be about 75 or 80 mm-hmm. in, human, in human years. Right, but, so you've got adult characters with adult themes. Yes. Oh, most definitely. This is this is not. Um, in fact, there is a. Um, I put a disclaimer on it. Uh, mature content, because yeah. I wanted people to know because the sex is graphic. Uh huh. And it's in your face. <clears throat> and I wanted well, people. Well, sometimes. No, I wanted ahead. people to understand that. This is what you're getting into, and not be shocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, speaking of mixing genres, you know, I just had a great, great idea to do kind of like a science fiction BDSM book, and it's going to be called Interplanetary Gray. Um, I just thought of that right now. Instead of Fifty Shades, we're going. Never mind. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make some notes while we're talking here. But I mean, actually, yeah. I did read, I did read a um, science fiction BDSM book. Well, you know it what? Was, there's it a, was interesting. <laughs> there's an anthology out, and I, you know, I've got it on the shelf, and I can't. Well, I could. I don't feel like getting up and going and looking for it. it or it might be downstairs. But there, there have been anthologies of, um, you know, sci-fi sex and you know, sex-based stories. Right, and some of them are really interesting. I mean, you have you have more mainstream like Ursula. I can't remember her last name. She did Left Hand of Darkness. You know those kinds Leguin. of things. Ursula Leguin. Yeah, not but but then there are those that are just more blatantly sexual, like a, a society where sex is mandatory. You know, right. from 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 like the age of thirteen on. You know, it's mandatory, and and so. I mean, it's it's interesting to explore those themes, but like you said, people should know what they're getting into when they either purchase the book or pick it up from the right. library or whatever and not be surprised because, you know, you get a lot of people who, well, I think the best example that I can think of was Pierce Anthony wrote a book called Firefly. Yes. And, and, and so many people 
made the charge of child pornography yes. against him for that book because they didn't understand his intent and and probably didn't read very carefully. So, I mean, that's that I mean, have you run into any readers or instances where that was such a big deal? No, I can't I can't really say I have. Uh-huh. Um I think you know, reading some of the reviews, I think there's like an undercurrent that readers some readers were put off by the sex. Right. But they didn't mention it in so many words. Um basically they said uh something to the effect like, well, you know, I didn't like the book because XXXXX and there was too much sex. <laughs> okay. And, and they, they add that on at the very end, even yeah. though that might be the one thing that, yeah, yes. I know. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, so I, 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 I'd i be honest with you, I, I rather enjoyed reading the bad reviews. Um, it kind of kind of gave me it gave me insight as to who was out there reading my book and what their expectations were right and how my book fulfilled those expectations or in these cases did not um i you know one thing i did not do was at first i did because you know it was my first book and you know i wanted everybody to love it but i after i read i guess the third or fourth negative review, I realized that this was not something to be taken personally. Well, that, and that's the hardest part that most creatives go through because, you know, even people who, who I, I've had people ask me, could you critique my work? Can mm-hmm. I send you something for you to look at? And I go, okay, fine. And then when I give them what I think is an honest assessment, and it's not brutal or anything, Right. But but the thing that we talked about earlier, which was your work um, being a validation or invalidation of self, depending upon how somebody approaches talking to you about it, you know, there there has to there has to be kind of a an intellectual high ground where you can sit up on top of the mountain, look down at your work and not feel, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune because somebody says something negative about it. And that's right. a real tough place to get. You know, a lot of people don't get there. And, you know, what's unfortunate is, okay, let's say somebody who had different expectations about your work reads your work and then is upset because you did not meet their their expectations. And then you, you're sitting there and you're going, well, uh, oh, wow, they hated my work, so they must not like me. And, and it's not that at all. You know, it's it's just a matter of this person didn't like what you. I, I, what book out there does everybody like? You know, that's I, the other thing. Well, okay, Green Eggs and Ham. Who doesn't like Green Eggs? Oh, and okay, Doctor Seuss. Yes. But but seriously, you know, there are people out there who think you know uh, what's his name? Stephen King writes at, a, at like a fourteen-year-old you know, for just about all of his books, except maybe some very, very rare exceptions. Right. But that doesn't mean that Stephen King is a bad writer. It just means that, you know, this one reader thinks that. So, yeah, it's 
I think the thing that you mentioned earlier, you know, just you have to be able to to understand a critique and to pay attention to it. I mean, man, look how lucky you were to have that mentor. Mm-hmm. Because at the very same time, they're helping you be a better writer. He was also teaching you to look at the writing from from an effective perspective right. rather than emotional ownership. Right. So right. I think that's a that's a great place where people, every writer, every creative has to get. I imagine it's like, you know, somebody who does what they think is a great masterpiece of painting, you know, something abstract that means something to them, and then, you know, some Philistine looks at it and goes, oh, too much red. You know what I mean? You, you, or worse, to, to it take, doesn't match yeah, the drapes. Oh, man, there you go. And and so you cannot take that as some sort of invalidation of self. You have to have a stronger ego than that. Mm-hmm. But that's a tough place to get. I mean, there there are lessons that have to be learned to get there. There are there's a maturation process, I believe, that that one has to go through to understand that a it's not all about you, and b you know step back a little bit because you're not going to please everybody. I mean, those are two Correct. very important things. So, and and I fell I fell victim to it. I got my first, well, my only bragging, 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 my only one star review on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And when and when I saw somebody put a one star review up there, I got mad as a, I got very upset. And and I you know at first I thought, well, how did how could you know because of course everything else is four and five star reviews. And then when I read it and detached myself from, oh, this is an invalidation of William. Oh, William wrote a bad book. Oh, you know, whatever. Then I realized, hey, this is a white guy who doesn't understand that black folks, if they're presented with the opportunity to leave the planet and not be around white folks anymore, a whole lot of us would go. Right. And I thought, this is actually a perfect one-star review because this illustrates, this this validates my thesis. Yep. But it, I, it took two weeks before I got there. That's a long-ass time in my years, in my days, in my hours, in my seconds. Mm-hmm. Anybody's life, two weeks of angst over anything is a long time. So right. yeah, those lessons are tough, tough to learn, but I think they make you a better writer in the long run. I think they do, too. I mean, you know, one of the things um, that I learned, the ex- one, one of the things I learned from the underground and my experience with bad reviews is that, um, you know, even bad reviews can, unless somebody's just being a troll, right. even even bad reviews contain nuggets that you can take with you. Well, yeah, and perspectives. I mean, that's a perspective. Someone gave you their perspective. Exactly. And, and, now, am, and, I, like going, said, now, am I going to write for them, you know, the next book I write? No. But it's, but it's good to know that that perspective is out there. Right. And, that, um, and you know, and, and who knows, you know, that perspective may work its way into the writing. I don't know. I mean, because, you know, I've got to sit down and write it first. But, well, yeah, um, and, and it could be an element you never thought of, too. Exactly. 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 So no, there, there, you know, there's a lot more to this writing business. And like, oh, you just, oh, you write. How nice. 
Yeah. You know, <laughs> like you just sit down and, and pound out a book. Well, no, there's a little bit more that goes into it. You know, I yeah. mean, especially, especially the the. I think the more you write, the more the more um, the, the, what's the word I want? I I don't really want to use perspective, but that might be the only word I know. Um, the more perspective you get, um, it with your writing and its relationship to the outside world. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think I think from a, a, a creative's perspective, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but what I'm trying to get to is the point where, to borrow a beer term, where I am fully croisoned, where where I am seasoned, where where I have mm-hmm. I have perspective, I have storytelling skills, where, you know, this thing that I write now is so much better than what I wrote before because I have learned my craft that much better. Right. Is that is that fair to say what where you were com- coming from? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, here, let me take a quick break here, even though it's a little bit early. You're listening to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website. You should really check it out. There's a whole lot of content there for those of you who have never been there. We're picking up this this uh, show as a podcast. Stop in, log in, and check out uh, some of the vanguard of the new millennium in terms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, that that is black themed. Um, that's essentially what we you know has been, this the site has been put together for. Uh, tonight's guest special guest is Roxanne Bland. She's an author. And the next part I want to talk to you about is you are now a publisher, correct? Yes. yes. Um, tell Black us a little Rose bit press. about, yeah, tell us a little, I'm sorry, what press? Black Rose Press. Black Rose Press. I'll it, pop up Black uh, Ro- the link. Black Rose, is, Black Rose is one word. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to tell this has nothing to do with roses. <laughs> it's just Black Rose. <laughs> yeah, Okay. Well, you know, people use all kinds of words for different things now, especially when you think in terms of Internet-based marketing and stuff like that. Sometimes you'll mm-hmm. see a word where it would have a certain meaning to you, and then, you know, it's all it's completely different. Um, so, um, so what, you know, for you to have put out one book, mm-hmm. one novel, and then now you have a publishing company, what, what was the impetus to push that forward? Well, we were talking about how the underground was so different that nobody could pigeonhole it. And I decided that that was probably, after talking to a number of people about this, um, I decided that that might be the reason why I wasn't getting um, bites on my book. Okay. And I was just about to start sending it out to, so I'd, I'd run through all of the agents, and I got, you know, got turned down. I was just about to start sending it off to small publishers when I thought to myself, why don't, not so much why don't I publish this myself, but why don't I start my own publishing company? And. That's and I, you know, did the research, 
on starting a publishing company and, you know, what it takes, what you need, um, and put together, you know, a very scaled-down version, still scaled-down version of Black Rose Press. And that's how... That's how I ended up publishing um, the underground. It's published through Black Rose Press. Now, if that makes me a self-published author, then fine. But it's published through. But the 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 name on the bottom of the page is Black Rose Press. Mm-hmm. Um, the same with my second book. I will be publishing that through Black Rose Press, and I'm using myself um, as a guinea pig because what I want to do with Black Rose Press is I want to publish science fiction, fantasy, horror, weird, bizarro, um, speculative fiction by people of color. And I want to try my best to bring those books out into the mainstream. I am so sick of there can be only one. And I don't believe that's true. I would like to do stuff, do things like um, go to BEA. Right. And, um, you know, have a booth where people can see that there are people of color out here writing science fiction. Um, the Latina, Latina world, oh, my goodness, it's huge. Yeah. I had no idea. So, you know, so putting out feelers and things like that. I mean, I've got websites when Black Rose Press is accepting, um, begins accepting man, um, submissions. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, going to, I'm going to go through uh, these webs, the Carl Brandon Society. Um, I'd never heard of them. They're, you know, Black Science Fiction Society. I'd never heard of them. Right. You know, and I mean, when until I went looking, and I want what I want. The world I see is that is we'll have Williams books right next to Isaac Asimov. Of course, that's alphabetically not correct, but we won't worry about. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I get you. Um, so, okay, so that begs the question, okay, as, as an author, I, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, okay, um, what is your process for giving me better visibility than I'm getting for myself? And, and even, that, even though you're, and, and you're just starting out, I know you're just starting out, and I don't ask that at, like as an unfair question, I ask that kind of in the service of, you know, have you have you looked at and have you refined your business model yet, or are you still kind of in the planning stages for that? It's still in the planning stages. Um, I'm working on um, getting some of the other pieces together, but one of the things I was thinking about is I'm one of the things I'm doing is I'm researching the net. I'm a strong believer, let me back up one second, I'm a strong believer in virtual book tours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm researching virtual book tour companies that, you know, they have to specialize in speculative fiction. I mean, right. I'm, not, I'm not going to a book tour company that does romance. 
and um, and and set up a working relationship with them. You know, I want to look at their resume. I want to see what they do. You know, how many? You know, when when you when you set up these tours, I mean, who's looking at the blogs? How many? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it makes no sense if you know for me to you know, have one of my authors up on a blog and there are only six people following it. You know, I mean, so... Yeah, no, I, I get you, you know, and, and that and that is the... Uh, that is the, the, the biggest challenge that independent creators, you know, who don't have, who don't have a um, publisher, who don't have... Mm-hmm. You know, a marketing firm. You know, a lot of these 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 very very fundamental needs that you have <clears throat> as an entrepreneurial content creator. You know, those are the challenges. Those are, right. I mean, and so so those are the things that you're actually seriously doing some investigating and and research into right now, correct? Right, right. You know, because it's you know one one of the things I learned with the underground is that. I've written this book. It's a damned good book. But now I have to market it. Right. And I knew absolutely nothing about marketing. Um, and there were some things that I learned and, you know, some things worked, some things didn't. But um what I'm what I want to do is to be able to put together a marketing package, you know, that I could where I can channel all of my authors. And, you know, like I said, that would include the virtual book tour. One of the things I would expect my authors to do is to go to conventions and to be out there. You know, hi, I'm so-and-so, you know, have a table set up. Right. You know, that would be sponsored by Black Rose Press. And if if Black Rose Press has a presence, then I would expect, you know, authors in the area, if, you know, if there are any, um, I would expect authors in the area to come to the table and help work the table, let people see mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, that, and, and that's all of that. All of that is good. The pressing of the flesh is always good because you know there's nothing more exciting for a content consumer than to meet someone that they may have read. Exactly. So I mean, that's but. You know the, the the bottom line question is how do you fund this you know this sort of endeavor effectively so that those sorts of things are possible? You know, at one time I was in the middle of writing a book, I was dead broke, and then there was a there was some convention in Detroit, and you know I really wanted to go just because I wanted to meet some people who I've only met online. But then, you know, I thought about it. Okay, you could drive there. That's X amount of dollars a gas. Then I looked at Megabus, which is actually like just riding in a uh, 1930s uh, Somalian village on wheels. Right. And Megabus, Megabus was like uh, $11 one way. Yep. And that, and but, but then I thought about it. Who are you going to be with on that bus? And and uh, yeah, I don't want to say I'm an elitist snob, but I'm an elitist snob, and I you know I'm I'm yeah, I I just couldn't do it. So I mean, it's very tough when you think in terms of you know that this is why the big six control about ninety six percent of all the books published in this country. 
96% right. of all these books are published by six publishers. Right. And, and and they have money that you and I will never see. And that's what makes them able to muscle muscle their books. You know, they get preferred placement in yep. in Barnes and Noble. Yep. They you know, they, they they do, you know, all kinds of advertising that <clears throat> we can't afford to do as independents. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I'm I'm saving up for uh, $13,000 right mm-hmm. now. And hopefully I'll have it by uh, September, October. And that $13,000 is going to go for a full-page ad in the New York book section for four consecutive weekends. Yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot of money. Yeah. But that that $13,000 will probably translate into 20,000 units of my book sold. Right. And and not looking at it as a value proposition in terms of cash because that's not what's important to me. I know that's really kind of shitty to say, but mm-hmm. it really isn't important to me. I don't care at this point in my career, how many books I publish, I care about getting my name out, which is why, you know, a publisher is so important because a publisher um, has the, should have the experience and the skills to get your name out because that's, that's right. the challenge. So, you know, if, if I do a provocative full-page ad in the New York Times book section, um, what will happen is I will have two classes. I, I decided what my kind of my theme across the top of the page it'll be. It'll be like forget Star Wars, forget Star Trek. The Dark Side trilogy is the the sci-fi tale for the new millennium. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm going to get two classes of people who will buy. I will get people who will buy anything that's advertised like that in the New York Times book section, no matter what. Most right. of those people don't even read those books. They just put them on their their coffee table so other people will see them. Oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, that was in the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to get the second class of people who are going to want to tear me a new one because how dare you say that your stuff is as good as Star Wars or Star Trek. But I don't care. I honestly don't care who buys for what reason as long as a unit gets sold. Yes. But I can't do – I mean, think about $13,000 for an ad. Yep. That's No, I I know know exactly what – and, you know, and that's – that's the other thing. I mean, I know, I know exactly what I'm up against, and um, which is why I have decided at this. I mean, you know, at the at the start sure. is to go ebook, right? Because the overhead is so low, mm-hmm. which leaves you money to do other things. Um, Can I ask a question about that? Sure. Do you have concerns? Okay, you know, obviously, um, Underground is available as an ebook. Yep. Do you have concerns about piracy? Okay, so one person gets a copy of Under the Underground, and all of a sudden, it's you know, torrents are available everywhere where they can get your book for free. Right. What What are your thoughts about that? Uh, for both as I want to know both as a content creator, and also as a publisher? Well, I think it can be some I I think it can be summed up in one word. It's theft. Yeah, but, but you know, what, I think the only person who do, I think the only person who um 
not that he, I don't think he so much defends it, is basically says, well, I think it's a good thing, is Neil Gaiman. Apparently, he does not mind being pirated. And how big is his bank account? Very big. Exactly. Exactly. But for middle class, well, for I'm middle class. I'll be in the 1% by the end of the year, but I'm middle class right now. (laughs) No, I am. I got plans. Girl, I got plans. But, but, you know, I, I can't, I can't be as cavalier or I don't have the courage of that conviction for myself. I agree. I don't, I don't want to all of a sudden, I mean, not that I cruise torrent sites because, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be wrong. But I, <laughs> I would hate I would hate for a friend of mine to say, "Hey, did you know there's like 342,000 people downloading Discovery right now?" And I'd be mad as a, I would be very upset. I would be too. You know, because not just the revenue, but you know the theft aspect of it, the 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 feeling of violation, the this, the that, you know, all the good, the bad, and the ugly about that. And and that's one of the reasons why none of my books are available in electronic format yet because the mm-hmm. other the, the part b side to that is i am also looking for a publisher i'd like it to be one of the top six right okay there there's a good chance that that will happen and my feeling is is that because a lot of these e-book publishing contracts and agreements allow a a vendor to sell your ebook in perpetuity Oh, and and so, yeah. so if if that's the case, then that makes me less valuable to Harper Collins because they're going well. We're going to handle William. Wait, we 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 don't get any money for the e-books. You see what I'm saying? So that, yeah, there's a value I, there's a value calculation there too. Right. I I don't. You know, I I've read some of these contracts and things like that, and they're just egregious. They are. Um, and and, and, and I I don't are, go ahead. I I don't plan to have well. Um, I have I still have to talk to have a a, a, a deep deep conversation with um, an intellectual property lawyer. Um, but my plan is to keep the right for your ebook and any print book. I might, you know, if it sells well enough, then we could maybe do a POD, mm-hmm. you know, to, to start with. Um, and I would say all, all rights would revert to the author um, in five to seven years, something like that. I, I, would, mm-hmm. not, I would not keep rights in perpetuity because I wouldn't want anybody to keep the rights to my book. In perpetuity. Well, and I there, th- and I think it's just egregious that that these these publishers do this, and it's even and it's and it's just heartrending that these authors sign because well somebody signed my book. Well, the reason the reason why they do that is because authors, content creators, are such desperate creatures. That's what I okay, mean. They, they will they will sign a bill of goods if they think it's going to make them as popular as these companies tell them they're going to be. Exactly, exactly. And and there are no guarantees. But you know you're taking a chance on me, but I'm taking a chance on you. 
you know, and um, I, I, but still, I, I read this one contract that was so egregious. It was on the web. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe they actually put it up there. I was like, this, this is, this is highway robbery. Well, you should have seen the first Kindle contracts because I, I was looking at them, you know, at the time because I was looking for to broaden my distribution. And and when I looked at those first Kindle contracts and they said that um, Amazon retained the right to, you know, once they they signed you to a contract to um, distribute your electronic work in perpetuity, I said, well, you know, I... I said some uncharitable things, yeah. But but then but then I understood. Every single author I've met is desperate. You know, they're desperate for validation and they're desperate to get their name out there. And if they don't look carefully at the contracts they sign, and you know what, I don't know two in one hundred authors who retain legal, you know, le- legal services exactly you know, exactly. on a regular basis for all their stuff. Most people, most authors are just so stupid, they think they're smart enough to look out for themselves, not realizing that some of the smartest people on the planet and people with political clout have already figured out six ways from Sunday how to steal from them. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. And, and that arrogance is what gets so many people in trouble. And people laugh at me. They go, oh, you know, you really ought to make your books e-books. I go, nope, nope, nope. not until somebody else picks me up and then let them do the heavy lifting and I just receive the royalties no matter what. Right. And, and you know, like you said, you know, yeah, I, I have a print-on-demand fulfillment house handling all my stuff. They also handle all my shipping. They handle the mm-hmm. books that go to Amazon and all of that. Because you know what? I don't want to keep a whole bunch of books in my damn basement and every two days have to run to the post office, you know, after boxing up a book and send it out. So, yeah, yes, I, I, I am getting less of a royalty per book, right? but I don't have to put up with the other stuff that, that a right. publisher should take care of you. So, I mean, there, you know, the business of doing business as a publisher has got to be there that adds a whole nother level of complexity because what you're doing is you're you're now the fulfillment house right. for for your people and right. and in your investigations of being a a publisher um you know, how how are you looking at the infrastructure that you have to have in order to do fulfillment for your clients well, that's why I want to do POD. I mean, if if I'm going to have print books, um, right. that's that's why I want to do POD to start. Because right. when I found out what a print run, a small print run, <laughs> five thousand books is a small print run. Right. I I I I, I nearly fainted. And I, I I said to myself, well, there's no way I can handle that. And if I've got two authors, that's 10,000 books. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing at this point, I'm not willing to, to rent warehouse space. Right. So that's why that is that was the impetus for me going e-book. And if it, um, like I said, if, the, if it uh, sells well enough, then we'll put out a couple of print copies, and we'll do a POD. Now, I will have, like, for example, I mentioned going to BEA. I will have print copies for that. Sure. You know, 
but um, but a print copy is not necessarily something that is going to when you buy the book, you're not necessarily buying a print copy. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, and I th- I think you know there people have I forget what it stands for, but DRM protected. Digital rights management. There you go. Um, copy protection in in English. Yes, I mean there's there's always DRM protection, um, mm-hmm. but you know there are people on both sides of the fence on that because some people say, well, what if I want to share? You know, I got oh man, I got this. They think they should be able to share an ebook the same way they share a paperback. Well, no, no, they can. You just have to hand over your Kindle to whomever. And see, they don't want to do that. They exactly. want to just be able to do an unlimited number of copies. Oh, man, you know, I want my book club to read this, so I'm just going to make copies for everybody. Exactly. And, and that, is, friends, a, that is a have, whole different story. Right. And I have friends who said, oh, yeah, you know, I loved your book so much, I wanted, you know, so-and-so to read it, so I gave them mine. I go, well, why didn't you just buy them some uh, another copy? You know, because, of course, that's me and thinking in terms of marketing, but... But you're right. People and people have have such entitlement issues over what they think is right and wrong, and not necessarily what may be legal. You know, they just figure, well, this this must be right because I can do it. Yeah. Or or I, you know, nobody's going to say anything about it because I can. You know, that sort of thing. Right. And, and that's a tough thing. And and that's one of the that's the that's the main reason why none of my books are in ebook format at this point. Um, so you no, know, I think and, and I, I, I would, think I would do DRM protection uh, for all of the books, of the ebooks. Right. I mean, if that's how if that's how I'm going to sell them, and if that's I mean I mean DRM protection not only protects me, it protects my authors. Yeah, it does. And and they say, oh well, you're going to sell less copies, and you go, yeah, but I'm also going to have a lot less, a lot fewer stolen as well too. That's right. You won't see me up on pirate sites. Yeah. Now, okay, so right now you're your only client, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. About how long down down the line do you think you're going to be at the point where you will feel facile enough and learned enough to pick up other people as clients? Well, first, um, I want to get my second novel published. I want to get it out of the okay. way. Um, and, and you're gonna you're gonna publish it through through Black your Rose own, Press. yes, right. Um, okay. Again, this is this is again using myself as the guinea pig to learn to learn the business, right. And I would like. I had originally said January of sixteen, mm-hmm. but I think it's I think it's more likely going to be June or July. Okay, about a year from now. I want to start accepting. Um, I want to start accepting submissions. And in and, the meantime, and, what and, you're going and, to be doing is learning the infrastructure. Yes. Yes. Um, I am. A, I am just sent a check off. To well, you know what qualifies as a check these days. Um, to the Independent Publishers Association. Um, that is a wonderful organization where folks like me who are just starting out can learn from people who have been there and who can teach you the ropes and mm-hmm. try to avoid and try to avoid the mistakes 
products that they have made. Um, they it's a, it's a wonderful little organization. Okay. And um, so, at, at, at least they seem to be. I mean, I, I haven't met anybody in person or anything like that, but um, it, it seems like it would be a good thing for me to join as a new yeah. publisher. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of value in networking because, you know yes. what, nobody wants to, you know, there are people who have big egos, but really nobody wants to repeat the mistakes of other people, especially if no. they're simple to avoid. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And um you know, if I can I mean, if I can do that then um you know, if I could if I can avoid someone else's mistakes and you know, more power to me. Mhm. Mhm. And more power to my authors. So, but that's what that's what I want. That's my vision of Black Rose Press. Um I don't know if you know, will I'll ever be huge or anything like that? But I'm not. But then I'm not trying to be. Um, I'm. I'm right now. My vision is starting small, and then we'll see where it goes. But right. I'll tell you. You know, we were talking before about these big six publishers and things like that. And you know, the other lock they have is on distribution. Yep, that's the other hard part. Um, to me. It's you know you got to get into Baker and Taylor. You got to get into um, God. It's literally on the tip of my tongue. A books. Um, ah. Oh well. It'll come. Ingram. Aha. There you go. You got to okay. get in. You got to get into those guys. Right. Because otherwise, nobody will be able to find your book. Because that's who they, yeah. those are the wholesalers. Those who that that's who they order the books from. Right, and and here's the here's what's going to happen. Within ten years, you're only going to have two places where you can get books. You're either going to get them from Amazon or you're going to get them from Google. I mean, those will be the two yeah. desktop winners in yeah. in this whole publishing thing. And and people who are paying attention are watching these larger conglomerates buy up you know, all of these sites that, you know, mm-hmm. that do independent work. Um, Goodreads used to be independent, and I believe it's now... Amazon. Oh, HarperCollins? Amazon? No, Amazon, Amazon has... Model. Yeah, Amazon has Goodreads now. So, so and and you know what? I don't, I don't want to... You don't sound like the kind of person who's going to want to do this, but I've had people pick fights with me about the fact that they said so-and-so and so-and-so is the greatest thing since sliced bread for publishing, and, and you know, that's just like anything else. There is no one perfect answer for everybody. Um, and, and I've seen more than one person get kind of screwed because they didn't pay attention. They didn't have a lawyer look over their contract. They right. didn't know about certain clauses. And you know what? I used to feel bad for those kind of people, but, you know, if you're that damn stupid, if you're that stupid, that you won't take care of yourself and you won't look out for yourself, then I, at, at this point with my old-ass self, I figured you got what you deserved. I can't care about you anymore because, you know, it's the whole world out there is tilted against us as creatives, as exactly. content creators. And the fact of the matter is nothing gets done. Movies don't get made. Comic books don't grow. News stories don't come up without creatives. 
and yet creatives are really at the poopy end of the stick in just about every part of the business um, uh, spectrum. And, well, yeah, and, and that's because that's because creatives are, are so busy being creative that they have no head. They they are so busy being creative that the business side of it just totally escapes them. I mean, look, I'm an attorney, right? There is no mm-hmm. way I would take a publishing, you know, take somebody else's publishing contract and sign it without having an intellectual property lawyer look at it. Right. I mean, but again, it, you know, but, but, and just because I know a little bit of contract law doesn't mean anything because it's a totally different animal than your basic contract. Right, and they play us. They play on our desperation. They, they do. play on on our our need to be accepted, our need to be stroked, our need to, you know, all of these. It, you know, it, I look at some people and and how desperate they are. And I can't. I just can't help but feel sorry for them, because that desperation is what pushes people into making bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I didn't know you were an attorney, by the way. So, what other accolades do you have? I've got some other questions, but I'm just kind of curious. I'm not an attorney, but I play one in my house. I, right. It, basically, yeah. I got these two pieces of paper on my wall that say I'm an attorney, but I, personally, um, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm no. supposed to be a clinical psychologist. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm a great clinical psychologist because I can't stand to listen to other people's problems. You got a problem, you need a friend, get a dog. Um, <laughs> but it's it's nice to know that we accomplished something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got to say one thing. I mean, one thing about being an attorney, it's certainly funding my nascent writing career, my nascent publishing company. Well, then it sounds like you're practicing. Yeah, I um, I work for... Oh, okay, all I right, work... yeah, I, I, I guess I mistook it. I, I, I'm sorry. So you, so you are, what, uh, what kind of law do you specialize in? Or are you a general practitioner? I'm a policy, policy okay. lawyer. I write, um, I, I work for an organization of state governments, Mm-hmm. And I do stuff like write model legislation, um, do analyses of federal legislation and how it impacts the state, things right. like that. Um, but wow. no, I'm, well, at not, least you're... I'm not one of those people. No, people say, well, I got a brother. It's like, no, no, I don't want to know about your brother. No, yeah, I don't really. want yeah. to know about your tax problem. You, you know, know? My, my, my daughter has an eating disorder. And you've got a, you know, you're a clinical psychologist. What's your recommendation? Well, I recommend you go find somebody who really can deal with her problem because I'm not your guy. You know, that's about that's about the extent of it for me. But I'm, I mean, it, you know, as far as policy law is concerned, you know, people also have a tendency to underrate the importance of that entire industry, and it is an industry because you've got people like Alec. The American right. Legislative Exchange Council. I was just putting that out there for other people who may not know. But, I mean, these are the people who have extended the privilege of, uh, of white cops killing unarmed and innocent black people to yep. civilians. They gave that privilege to civilians with the Stand Your Ground laws. Now, yep. a white man anywhere can kill a black man, and all he has to say was, I feared for my life. Because, you yep. know, black folks are scary. 
Um, so, yeah, no, uh, you know, people don't understand that, that policy law uh, is, is very important in this country because of how it is used. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, my hat's off for you if you're working for the good guys because there's I not like a lot of them out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think your dream is like my dream to get to the point where you can, your creative endeavors, your writing and your mm-hmm. publishing can be your primary source of income and you don't have to, I don't want to say moonlight because it's not really moonlighting, but when you have a gig that pays your bills, but you, in your heart, you know, it, the creative part is what right. really drives your soul. Right. I think we all want to get to that point. Um, do you have, do you have in your mind, I know you have the desire, but do you have like a schedule, you know, um, you know, uh, kind of like a tentative schedule of, how how you're going to get to that independent part. You mentioned, you know, a couple years now or less before you start taking on other, or a, a short amount of time before you start taking on other um, mm-hmm. creatives. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I am looking into um, is retirement, early retirement. Sure. And, um, you know, I'm working on getting my ducks in a row, yeah. but um, that's an option. It's I'm not going to ask how old you are, but, I mean, are you talking about in a decade or two decades, or what do you... No, I'm I'm talking about in a couple of years. Wow, that's pretty cool. So, um, but, but you're not going to retire. See, that's a, that's a lie. Well, you're not going to retire, gonna... retire, because you're, you're going to be... Bit, oh, girl, especially if you start taking on clients and really helping them navigate, you know, the, the, the raging waters of the publishing industry, are, are you really going to, do you really think you're going to retire, or are you just going to be less dependent upon day-to-day billing in order to pay your bills? I'm going to be less dependent. I'm, I, when I say retire, I'm talking about retiring from my day job. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... um and i'm i'm look i'm seriously looking at that um and um if i can do it then i will i mean you right. know if i could if i can retire in a couple of years then i will because sure. you know i mean this you know black rose press is something that it it started out as a channel for me to publish my own books mhm but then I started looking around me and listening to people. Like in the industry, you mean? Like in the industry and listening, okay. to, black, listening to black people, black speculative fiction writers. Right. And I thought to myself, you know, there's a real need out here. These people need to be represented. And, you know, if I can do that, then I would like to do that. I mean, I mm-hmm. remember I remember this one. Um, I was at this um, convention, and I forget the name of the panel, but basically it was people of color who write or something like that. And I'll never forget what this one woman said. She said, 
self-publishing is not a stigma in the black community because that's the only way we can get published. True, yeah. And ding, that's when the idea was born, that I could do this. I can do this. I can I can help people of color, people of uh, I can help people of color get published. Not just black people, but I can help people of color get published because mm-hmm. where are the Asians? I mean, I, we already know there there's lots of. Oh, I'm sorry. I was I was raising my hand. I didn't say anything out loud, but yeah, I'm raising my hand because I'm Asian and you know. But, yes, but you're but, right. But who you're, else? But you're William? right. No, but here's here's the deal. You, what you're talking about is the true essence of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, and that is find a niche that is not being served. Then then get in and serve it well, and and that's that's the essence of entrepreneurship. And, and that's and, and that's what I want to do. I mean, you know, not just to be an entrepreneur, but to actually be a service. Right. You know, to people who are woefully underrepresented in the genre. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I, like I said earlier, I am tired of there can be only one. No, that's not true. Well, the, the, I think the best part of what has happened, especially it's been accelerated since the new millennium started, is the fact that that the self-publishing services that are out there for books, for comics, for you know, for whatever art, and even you know, there's there's a little bit of that in the music world, but um, I think oh, I saw another statistic in America, ninety-eight per no, ninety-nine percent of all the music in America that's played on the radio is controlled by um, one company, and that's that's frightening. But no, two companies, two companies, but. You know, where it used to be that restrictive for publishing novels and comics, mm-hmm. um, the the print-on-demand services and even the a la carte services of editing, of artwork and things like that have, have given uh, a, a whole new, it's not even a generation, a whole new has opened up the ability to get your work at least into other people's hands. Mm-hmm. Now, again, again, the marketing part is, of course, the, the big hurdle. But you, you can get your work into other people's hands because the, the, the hurdles, the threshold to getting your work produced is much, much lower. Right. That's exactly right. And what I see... Um... You know, I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and she says, have you got your team assembled, your in-house team? Right. There is going to be no in-house team. I'm going to have a network of relationships with people. Right. Paying for a la carte services is the yes. model to go for. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can't afford to have an in-house team. And I, you know, and there are a lot of folks out here who don't want to be. They they want to, they want to do what they love, but they don't want to be a part of an in-house team. Right. You know, they they want to do it freelance, and so you develop, um, a relationship with mm-hmm. these people. I like to, um, you know, again, you know, I'm 
with my own book, I'm, you know, experimenting. But um, one of the things about my, my new, my work in progress is that the native people speak Swedish. So the, Wait, the native people, where do they live? They live on a planet called Paris. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. No, I, I thought when you said native people, of course, I automatically think, oh, the native people, like you know, like the uh, the Indians here in the um, in the. Well, no, you know, I, I'm I, I admit I'm earth centric. Um, I try to be I a little understand. more cosmopolitan than that, but um, okay, so so the I found, native I found, people. I the okay the native people the Hakoi as I call them, their native okay. tongue, um, the, their native tongue is Swedish. And what color are they? I'm sorry. No, they are bronze. Bronze people. Bronze okay. colored, yes. Um, and so I wanted, I needed to find an editor who was fluent in Swedish. Ah. Because I don't trust Internet translators. And I, I found I get one. what you're saying. I found yeah. an editor who was he's he's Swedish, he's fluent obviously in Swedish, but he's also fluent in English, and he's doing the editing. That's excellent. But see that now the thing. And, and now depending on you know how this relationship works out, you know, just because another book might not have any Swedish in it doesn't mean he can't edit it. I mean, I may end up developing a relationship with this guy. Right. So, and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I mean, and rather than having it, you know, just have a, a, a network of relationships and more than one editor. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket, but have a network of people that you can use, you know, to and, do X, and Y, that's and a benefit to him. That, sure, that's a benefit because you can feed him clients that you know from even you know if somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, I need such and such edited." You know, there, there's a referral there. You know, and sure. and that's the that's the benefit of a la carte networking. You know, Agreed. you don't have to pay somebody a salary. You pay them for the work that they do, and some people prefer that because it allows them to keep their own independence. And you know what? The the most important thing that people don't think about that they don't think about is the ability to say no. Exactly. You know if. You know, uh, and and that that's just as important as being able to have the ability to say yes. Yes. No. You're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's why I'm. That's why I was saying I no. I wouldn't have just the one editor. I'd have a whole network of them. Right. You know, you busy? Can you do this right now? Well, it definitely sounds like you've got your model thought out well, and and you've already you've already identified the pitfalls for any new startup, you know, and that is undercapitalization and and having a whole bunch of people sitting around that have to be paid that aren't doing anything. We call it the MC Hammer model. The MC Um, Hammer model? Oh, yeah. He was paying all his people, his road people, even while they they weren't on the road. You're kidding. Oh, look. In, all right, let me just say this. This is a little bit off topic, but for people who come into a lot of money, let's say for the sake of argument you won the lottery. And this uh-huh. is really, really, really important. If you win the lottery and you don't go and get financial help before you even go down there and get your ticket turned in, 
you're a fool. Because here's the thing. I, I've told everybody I know, if you ever get a whole lot of money coming to you, I'm bringing you to my house, I'm taping you to a chair, and you have to watch every single episode of VH1's Behind the Music because that's all the nonsense that you are going to have to avoid doing. And right. people laugh, but, I mean, you know, MC Hammer buys a $10 million house. He pays his entire stage crew, backup dancers, musicians, what have you, when they're not on tour. You know, that, that doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. You, you, can't pay, you can't pay an entourage like that when there's no money coming in. Yeah, here, somebody in the, in the, um, in the chat room said Hammer had 200 people on his payroll at one point. <clears throat> what? That, that's, that's a lot of money. And, and, you know, that's not even good business. I mean, stop and think about how many people start a business, and, um, and this is the hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod to you, Roxanne. How many people start a business and don't do a business plan? Oh, I imagine there are lots. I imagine there are lots. Most, 98%. 98% of black folks do not write a business plan. And, and then wow. they wonder why their business fails the sale, after, yeah. you know, before the first year is up. And the, and, and the biggest reason why is not so much the plan itself, but it's, it's because they didn't have what the plan helped them do. And, and most businesses die in the first year because of undercapitalization. Mm-hmm. You know, every, every business should be capitalized to the extent that you can run your business for a whole year without making, making a any money. single yeah. nickel. Yeah. You have to have a year's worth of money banked in order to start a business. And people people go, Man, that's crazy. I can be I'll be making money as soon as I open the door. And I go, Well, first of right. all, you borrowed money to get where you are, and second of all, you're probably not gonna make enough to make your dreams come true, you know, right off the bat, because you have to build clientele. Right. But undercapitalization is a big thing and people don't write business plans. Yeah. Now, I, I, I don't want to brag, but I'm going to brag just for a second. Last year, I wrote a three-page executive summary, and I got $5 million in startup funding mm-hmm. just, from, just from the executive summary. And people go, oh, that's crazy. But no, no, no. People see that sort of thing so seldom that when you do it, they, they, they can see that you know what you're going to do with their money. That's right. the other thing. You know, can he pay me back? You know, I don't know how much you're going to borrow to get your company up, but but from what I know about you, I know that you're going to have not only a a a, a restitution, you know, a payback schedule, sure. but I would imagine that knowing you, especially knowing your legal training, you are also going to build in an exit strategy. Most yes. people don't think about that too. They don't yes. know what that is. Uh, an exit and strategy. Going bankrupt. That means, like, when I go home at night, no, no, no. You know, an exit strategy, so how you can get the most out of your company and maybe even retire off of it. Right. So, you know, starting a business is not an inconsiderable thing. And nope. and it sounds very much to me like you are going about it. And I don't mean this from an egomaniacal point of view that I know everything. I certainly don't know everything. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this show every Friday night. But <laughs> but the fact of the matter, well, no, it's true. I You know, if I had friends or someplace to go or the ankle bracelet off, I, I wouldn't be doing this. But But the serious part about this is that it takes planning. And even if you plan on writing a book, people don't realize that you have just started a business. Right. 
So, and then they, and I go, well, did you write a business plan for how you're going to get yourself published? You go, what? I mean, they're scratching their head like I'm crazy. But anytime right. you're creative, you write a book, you decide you're going to do a comic book, you, you do an anthology of short stories. Now, somebody says, I thought you were doing the show because you know everything. Man, if I knew everything, y'all never would have met me. Um, but, but seriously, if, if you don't, you know, what is it? If you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Is that the saying? I'm not sure. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and it's so important. So, I mean, I'm gratified to hear what you're doing. And, and I mean, you kind of joke that, well, one day you'd like to see William Hayashi's books uh, next to Isaac Asimov's and things like that. And, and those are the kinds of things that only a publisher can do for an author. You know, first of all, most publishing companies won't talk directly to an author, especially the big six. The big six won't talk no. to you at all. You have no. to have an agent. And, and, and agents get mad when I say this, but the catch-22 is you have to have an agent in order to get a publisher, but you have to have already published in, or, in order to get an agent. Get an agent. And, yeah. and, and that's a tough catch-22 to get in there because agents don't want to do the heavy lifting of bringing a brand-new person, you know, to lift them up and get them that visibility because it costs a lot of money. And then I, you know, in doing some research when I, for the underground, when I was, you know, working on the underground, getting trying to get it right. published, um, a lot of agents don't consider self-publishing to be published. That's true. They, yeah. Well, there's an arrogance in there because, you know, they have to believe in their minds that if they don't do it, it hasn't been done. Right. You know what I mean? If if an agent didn't publish Discovery, then I didn't publish Discovery. Then Discovery's not published. Right. You know, so, so yeah. And, and then the other part of it is if you're fortunate to get an, an agent who can get you into a good publisher, uh, again, <clears throat> Going back to the whole ego part and the validation of self, you know, a publisher is going to assign an editor to you. And the editor's job, bottom line, is to pee all over your stuff to make it partly theirs. Yes. And and a lot of people don't realize that they're so invested in, well, these are my words and I'm not going to change a single word. Then, then you should not be looking for a publisher because publishers, publishers, that's what they do. And a good editor can look at your book and can tell you if they take on your book exactly how many copies of your book are going to be sold. Yes. That's how good they are. They know that. And and those are the kinds of things that you can't convey to to an author very well. Um, a lot of these, okay, I use Ex Libris as my fulfillment house. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't like them. But you know what? I've noticed the people who don't like them have really stupid expectations about what Ex Libra should have done or what their mm-hmm. contract was or whatever. But having said that, when I call them or they call me, <clears throat> and they, they're handled out of the Philippines, they are so obsequious. They are so fawning. And, you know, and, and, you know that's partly the Filipino uh, right. uh, whatever. But because authors are effing crazy. Okay, authors are nuts. 
I've, I've managed to break through some of that and talk to them and say, okay, you know, I, you know, first of all, quit calling me by Mr. Call me William. Um, don't, don't thank me for everything. Let's just have a real conversation here. And they're like taken aback because they, they don't get that. Authors are crazy because they don't know the industry. Mm-hmm. And if they don't know the industry, you know, they have these really strange expectations. I'd say that about creatives. I, I met a, a, I was at a networking meeting for film and, you know, a guy was asking Tim Kazarinsky, hey, if somebody buys your script, can you put a clause in the contract where you get to sit on set every day and, and uh, critique, you know, how they're handling your script? And, and I, I almost, you know, I almost passed milk through my nose when the guy asked that because he, he obviously had no idea. And authors are the same way, which is why publishers won't talk to them. I think it's, it's good that people like you get into publishing because being a published author and the publisher, you've seen everything from both sides. And, and I have to believe, you know, first of all, you're not a stupid person. I have to believe that you're, you're going to be a better publisher because you've seen it from both sides. But I, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall the first time you answer the phone from one of those crazy authors who has no idea what the industry is like, what the expectations are, and what roles everybody plays in it, and they get you on the phone and, and they start asking you some really crazy, wacky stuff. My advice to you is to take notes because that's a book that you need to publish. Yeah. My, my life as an independent publisher, you know, you, you say, you, you think these guys who, uh, who have crazy writers who are musicians and only want the yellow M&Ms and stuff like that. Let me tell you about Mrs. X who came to me with a cookbook and said the following. Because the thing is, is most people don't study their own material. They don't study what's necessary to learn even in, a, in, in an endeavor like becoming a published author. And I, I don't envy you, I don't envy you that part of the business because that's not going to be easy and it's not going to be fun. But hopefully, you know, you're you're going to be able to give them a much better experience for having been on both sides of the fence. Right. And you know, one of the things at least, you know, one of the things I plan to do um and I don't know how well this is going to work out. But one right. of the things I plan to do is, at least in the beginning, since I'll only have a few clients, mm-hmm. is to sit down, try to sit down um, and chat. Now, this is what you can expect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is reality time. This right. is what I'm going to do. This is what you can expect of me, and this is what I expect of you. Right. And like I said, I don't know how well that's going to work, but that's something I really want to do because, you know, like like we were saying before, authors need to understand that this is a business. They are in a business. (laughs) You know, they just don't fling words on paper or on the screen. I guess I can see now I'm telling my age. Um, (laughs) They don't, you just don't fling words up on a screen. Um, If you're going, if you want other people to read those words, you've got to put on your business hat. And you have to know what, don't expect your publisher to do everything for you. Right. One, I'm not big enough. Two, I don't believe that's the way it should work. 
you know, when you get as well, big as Stephen King, then you can have everybody else do whatever for you. But you're not yeah. there. No, that's true. And one of the things that I have, I, I ask other people about, and it, it seems pretty consistent that it falls into the 80-20 rule where 80% of what independent content creators do is the business of doing business and 20% is the actual creative endeavor in order to you know to qualify to get that business done. That's right. And 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 I think that it it's not that much different in terms of being a creative and having a publisher. I mean, some things are taken out of your hands, but you still have to write good stuff. You sure. you still have to go over your own your own work before you turn it over to an editor unless you're very very lucky and they go oh let's just take uh this 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 turd and we'll turn it into gold you know or, or however you know somebody's mm-hmm. going to deal with with a really good but really hard to deal with author so i i think that the strategy of being able to sit down and and help people manage their expectations is going to be an important feature that you're going to provide for your clients um, I I I wish that you get people who will listen to you. Yeah. And, and and the other part of it is I hope that you get you're able to get people over a lot of the emotional humps that make it so hard for creatives to to do what they're supposed to do, which is help them manage their expectations about their content. Right. To manage their expectations about the fact that if I even if I give you a criticism about your book, that doesn't mean I hate you, and and that your mother birthed a bad child, you know. But what it means is there are probably some things that can make your work better, which means you'll be more popular and you'll sell more books, you know. And and help people get over the tendency to to feel that any crit- critique is some sort of invalidation of self, as we talked about at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like you're going to need the lawyering skills and probably an in-house counselor to help people emotionally <laughs> get yep. to the point. But I you're mean, looking for hey William, you looking for a job? <laughs> I don't like talking to people about their problems. Might be you know, like I said, you 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 need a friend, get a dog. Um, I you know, and and I'm I'm so close. I am so close to being that guy who says, "Get the hell off my lawn" when the kids walk by. Mm-hmm. So, I'm I'm not your guy. But <laughs> you know, you're, you you've already identified that you need equal parts business acumen and and an equal part of you know relationship management, customer relationship management. Mm-hmm. And and so I mean obviously both are important in order to have a great two sided relationship. Somebody mentioned in there that people don't read their contracts. That's true, they don't. But with you being being the, the lawyer, you can insist on them finding their you know, having their own representation Absolutely. on and say, No, I can't deal with you, I have to deal with your representative and they go, Well, why do I have to pay a lawyer can't you just give me the contract? And you go, you know what? I could, but do you know that that's not really ethical? You know, right. even even though even though it's legal for me to take advantage of you, it's not ethical, and I don't play that way. So right. I, you know, I, I if you structure this well, maybe you will be putting my books next to Isaac Asimov's, and I can just say screw Harper Collins. So 
Um, I think the coolest thing is that, you know, you, you stopped in at BlackScienceFictionSociety.com when you got there, whenever that was, way back when, and that you are a resource that people can at least reach in that, uh, in that forum, in that uh, social networking site. Um, and people should pay attention to what other people's expertise is because we can all learn from each other. That's um, true. That's very true. You know, there are some people who are hard-headed who believe they know everything, and I watch them get tripped up all the time. Um, and and the other thing is, what's that? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You know, right. some people just believe that they that nobody else can offer them anything of value in their own lives. And and I'll tell you right now, those are not the clients you want to have. You know, oh, because... definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> um. If if you had, you know, just, just thinking about where you are right now in terms of having built or, or starting to build your own publishing company, um, what what is the best thing that you have discovered about deciding to do that? We have about four minutes left. But, I mean, just what what's the best part of you sitting back going, you know what, I'm going to be a publisher? There's a peculiar sense of freedom. Um, freedom from freedom from having to worry about federal legislation. Mm-hmm. There's that freedom, and there is a freedom of working for myself. There is the freedom I feel of helping other people. Mm-hmm. Um. It, it's it's just a whole bunch of freedoms all bundled up into one package, and um, I really feel and I really feel like you know the I really feel like I have a service to offer that can help people that um, will help them grow as authors as well as people. Um, I feel like what I'm doing is truly worthwhile. And I guess that pretty much sums it up. And, and let's be honest, you you have an opportunity to control your own revenue stream. Right. Right, control my own destiny. Yeah, you know, for someone who wants to retire in, what, a couple years, hopefully? Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Or at least at least retire from the day the day gig and do the thing that you love. Exactly. Yeah, and and so real quickly, what's what's the the thing that you may be looking forward to the least? Because we still got a couple minutes here. I'm curious, you know, as you sit there and you go, well, this is all going to be very good, but I'm going to really have to watch out for dealing with marketers because that's what they are. I mean, they, I mean. That's what they do. They they sell things, and they may be able to sell you something you don't need. Or, or I knew a guy. I, I, yeah. I knew a guy um, who was a hell of a marketer. This guy, mm-hmm. no n- no kidding. This guy could sell refrigerators to Eskimos. Mm-hmm. And he wants he he when I used to do probate law years ago, he actually managed to talk 
the hospital down $8,000 for his cousin's final illness. And he just walked in and talked him down because he was personable. He was um, personal. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. He was, he was just that personable that people just fell into his hands. Mm-hmm. He was, and, and what did he do before he retired? He was a salesman. And that's what marketers are. They're salespeople. Yeah. But you have to make and sure they don't get you, you know, that, that you're not so overcome with their blitz or their bling that <clears throat> you lose yourself in the process. Yeah, and, and you know, creatives are, for the most part, very desperate people, and they're very, very easy, easily led astray. Um, yeah. And... And that's, yeah, I could see why that would be the one thing where you say, I just don't want to deal with those people at all. Right. Um, well, look, we have uh, we have come to the top of our time, the end of our time here. Um, for those of you who may have tuned in late, we've been talking to Roxanne Bland, author and nascent publisher. And she'll be looking for, looking for new blood very, very shortly. Um, you have, when do you think you'll have your second book out? By the way, um, I'm I'm planning on by Christmas for the Christmas rush or whatever they call it, the Christmas season. So figure December. Which no, which basically starts in October. Oh, that quick. Okay, so you're going to yeah, try to finish I'm, up by I'm, the end I'm of summer. I'm hoping <laughs> it'll be out by October, and just in time for the Christmas season. Very nice. And and is this in the same universe as Underground, or is this? Oh no, I, no, it's a completely. This is completely universe. different. Great. Completely different. So people people will get uh, a, an even better view of your creative mind. Yeah. Well, I want I want to thank you for being here. This has been great. I mean, it's been easy, and it didn't seem like that amount of time. Um, Jarvis can't dial in or hasn't called in, so I'm going to take over saying goodnight. I want to thank everybody who stuck around and listened to this live. I especially want to thank people who um, checked this out as a podcast and all of the people who helped make this possible and all of the creatives who hang around and uh, give give of themselves at uh, the Black Science Fiction Society uh, com. I would call it a social networking site. It really is. Um, yeah. And and uh, I want to remind people that this show is live uh, most every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And, of course, obviously, as you follow the clock around, the, ch- the time changes. And tell your friends, stop in. If you want to read some of the best content, the, the newest, the freshest um, black-themed content, want to check it out, it's at blacksciencefictionsociety.com website. So on behalf of our administrator, our peerless leader, and the creator of BSFS, Jarvis Sheffield, I want to wish everybody a good evening. Um, I want to thank you again. Yes, Roxanne? Can I say one more thing? Oh, absolutely. Hi, Mom! (laughs) Are you going to have her listen, or is she listening now? She's been listening. Well, hey, Mom, uh, I hope uh, I treated your daughter well, and uh, we'll talk later. Um, and, and hang on, don't hang up after I stop the show, just in case anybody in the chat room has anything else they want to put okay. in there. 
hey, even the inappropriate stuff for your adult-themed sex and things like that. So on behalf of Jarvis, everyone else, myself, um, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you on the next show. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.